Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable Price point comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, a uh, quick note to tell you that Cool Mules is the number one podcast in Canada right now. If you have not subscribed, go do that now. Anita Lee. Yes. Hello. Hello. Journalism prof, media consultant, co-founder of Canadian Journalists of Color. Yes. In our studio. Thank you for being here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Today, Anita, we are going to talk about the latest shakeup at the CBC. Jennifer McGuire is out, and audience is the new target audience, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a new poll revealing that Canada is broken. Won't someone at the National Post please, please tell us how to fix it? Once again, glad to have you here today. Thanks so much. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by James Kalin, Vashti King. Christina, Neil Graham, Heather Holdsworth, Jillian Raddy, Marnie Jacob, and Chris Finn. I live in Ottawa, Ontario. I'm a software sales executive and cycling enthusiast, and it's really hard to find quality Canadian content in the podcast world, and that's why I support Canada Land. Yes. Hello. Hello. Journalism prof, media consultant, co-founder of Canadian Journalists of Color. Yes. In our studio. Thank you for being here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Today, Anita, we are going to talk about the latest shakeup at the CBC. Jennifer McGuire is out 
an audience is the new target audience, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and a new poll revealing that Canada is broken. Won't someone at the National Post please, please tell us how to fix it? Once again, glad to have you here today. Thanks so much. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by James Kalin, Vashti King, Christina, Neil Graham, Heather Holdsworth, Jillian Raddy, Marnie Jacob, and Chris Finn. I live in Ottawa, Ontario. I'm a software sales executive and cycling enthusiast, and it's really hard to find quality Canadian content in the podcast world, and that's why I support Canada Land. Anita, is Canada broken? Well, I guess we're going to find out over the course of this episode. <laughs> no, we have, we don't, we, it's not up to you and me. Uh, we have numbers, we have stats, okay. we have data. Uh, this is how, like, okay, so this was a, a massive front page story in the National Post. The number 69, very uh, waggishly and salaciously presented in italics in, in the cover of the National Post, 69% of Canadians agree. This is how you kind of like manufacture news. Like there's no like breaking news, Canada is broken or breaking news, like 69% of people think Canada is broken. Mm-hmm. The National Post asked that question. Yeah. They created the foundation, the data foundation for this news. I mean, you know, this is the newspapers do polls all the time, but yep. I think it's relevant to look at the context here because after Canadians have been saturated in coverage, suggesting that Canada is very broken and that the people who broke it are the protesters. Mm -hmm. And then you ask, and the National Post and Post Media being, I think, foremost among the media that have been relentlessly suggesting that this country is absolutely broken because of the protesters and because of, you know, the Post's agenda being, you know, leadership in Ottawa is not doing enough about this. Mm -hmm. And then you ask people, there's just so much uh, that you can kind of cook into a question like this based on when you ask it and what specifically you ask. So questions like, is Canada broken? Canada is not heading in the right direction, uh, was one of the questions. Uh, Do you agree or disagree? Mm -hmm. Prime Minister Trudeau is not governing well. I think you could have anticipated that this would be the outcome of this, Mm -hmm. given the media that we've been receiving. Yeah. It just feels like such a a leading question, particularly in this particular context. I also don't think it's constructive. I mean, we talk so much about polarization in around the world, polarization in media. And this I just don't see this as a productive survey question to readership. Like what what were you trying to get out of it? How does this serve the readers of the National Post is my question. I think there is something cynical about fomenting division and then saying, look at how divided we are. Yeah, of course. Uh, And this isn't me like reaching. This is how they present it in the Post story. In the wake of regional discontent from the Western provinces and blockades jamming up the country's rail network, a towering majority of Canadians agree with the statement right now. Canada is broken. So, you know. This, therefore, that. What do you think, everybody? And people say yes. Mm-hmm. You know who doesn't agree with that? Who? Former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. Oh, okay. Toronto Star. And this is how you kind of create a new cycle. So yes. the Post is saying Canada is broken. Now the star goes to Chrétien and he responds. And, you know, I have a fondness for Jean Chrétien. There's a lot of things I don't like about Jean Chrétien. Mm-hmm. But there's something that I appreciate in a world of very polished politicians. Mm-hmm. His lack of polish. I used to think that it was his lack of polish with the English language. And then people told me, no, he's he's just as blunt in French. <laughs> I find it funny that you say the lack of polished politicians around the world, given how many populist kind of crude leaders we have. But 
Yeah, that's yeah. interesting because there's almost a, there's a, there's a so that's a, actually a PR could be a PR strategy. There's a new as kind well, of right? polish to being a populist. Though, yeah, absolutely. Which is about having no pol- but but Kretchen <laughs> he really shrugged away this idea. Everybody, calm down. Canada's not broken. Yeah. We're not broken at all. And he said, "Look, the native problems always have been there." Hmm. Okay. That's interesting, isn't it? I think Kretchen is right. Mm-hmm. I think that. Canada is not broken. I think that maybe it's functioning exactly as it was intended to. Because what I take from his meaning is, let's just uh, agree that the way Canada has always worked is that we have a permanent native problem. Hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. always been a problem. And if you ever thought it was going to be fixed, uh, you were dreaming. And Canada has worked just fine coexisting with our enduring, unsolvable native problem. I mean, I wouldn't say that we worked just fine. There's obviously so many indigenous communities that uh, have been grappling with a lot of systemic issues, systemic racism that have just been kind of shoved to the side. And so it's not that Canada is broken. It's that these issues are coming to the fore and we're actually discussing them. So I think it's so problematic that the Post is framing it in that way, because I actually see this as a sign of progress. We're actually coming together, sitting together at the table, having this kind of discourse in a way that we never have before in this country. Yeah, I mean, there were some developments out of this that I think have gone overlooked Mm -hmm. in the division. I don't know. I mean, we've been looking at this week after week, and I've been taking a granular look at the coverage. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be a while before I have like a thorough understanding of just what happened and is still happening. But like the parts are starting to describe the whole. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to get a sense of it. I don't know. Like, I want to go through some of the coverage with you and, and, and get your thoughts on how this has played out. Yeah. One thing that we saw recently was uh, this narrative in the media about um, outside agitators. Yes. And how the protests are sort of basically challenging the the legitimacy of the protests because expose, some of the protesters are not indigenous people from these specific communities. And Mm -hmm. Global specifically had a report Mm -hmm. where, shocking expose, there were indigenous people from the U.S. who came and uh, in solidarity took part in this. Do you have any ties with the First Nation? Like, are you First Nations yes, or Indigenous? You are? Okay, well, can you tell us which band you're associated with or which group? I'm Yurok from Northern California and Navajo from New Mexico. Oh, cool, so you're not Canadian? No, I'm not. Okay, so what brought you up here? I came here for school. In fact, she earned a PhD in philosophy and has been called one of Simon Fraser University's most outstanding graduate students. It was sort of presented as if this was something hidden or something. That is something that you heard, you know, elsewhere that, um, you know, this is just downtown white people who don't even know what they're doing, who are signal boosting this protest. And in addition to that, I think that there's been a narrative that to whatever extent it is actually indigenous people protesting, they're really misguided. And Mark Tui, the outgoing editor in chief of the Toronto Sun, he had a, an editorial, and, and and why should his last bit of writing be any better than anything he's done there since beforehand, where he said, you know, First Nations need to get their act together. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like, they don't know what's good for them. Like, to the extent that they're actually doing this without some sort of foreign influence putting them up to it, or they're not oh, dupes geez. and puppets, yeah. they, they, they would be a lot smarter just to get with the program and get the benefits of, of, this, uh, of this pipeline. And they're being led poorly, um, and they're making bad decisions for themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a narrative that we've gotten pretty consistently, but Martin Lukacs did a really interesting analysis where he went back to the 1870s and found that this narrative of outside agitators, that whenever indigenous people actually mobilize for their own interests, 
they are delegitimized by the press. Yeah. And and it's suggested that they don't know what, what they're doing. And he found he actually like we'll put this Twitter thread up uh, in, in the show notes. But mm-hmm. uh, he, he takes this like decade by decade outside agitators, outside. Agi- this is an old story. Yeah. So I, I, I take your point that Canada's not working well, but this is how it's worked to whatever extent it's worked mm-hmm. or, or for whoever it's worked for. Mm-hmm. We're doing the same stuff. So I think this is this kind of criticism of indigenous communities and the protesters is totally in line with the kind of stereotypes that are thrown at indigenous folks all the time. It's fundamentally dehumanizing, obviously. And I just I think it's making a mountain out of molehill because these issues transcend even an indigenous identity, right? They they involve issues of the climate and also activist movements everywhere have always had like allyship. So it's never just been about you know, for example, Standing Rock had a lot of Black Lives Matter folks support Standing Rock protesters. Yeah. And so I don't really see a discrepancy or an issue with, you know, downtown elites, quote unquote, or, or white people joining in on something that they believe based on their principles. So why is this a story even is my question. I would suggest that it stems from an inability to imagine that indigenous protesters and indigenous leaders have agency to actually figure out what they're doing and and it's it's really interesting if you yeah. if you if you track what's what's happened and you want to talk about solidarity you know who's got solidarity is the pipeline has solidarity like mm-hmm. you know uh, actually the CBC did a really good analysis of Facebook advertising and found that like $110,000 has been spent getting millions of impressions mm. trying to foment division and and criticize the protests and, and, and delegitimize them. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of like people who want Canadians to feel a certain way about the protests and yeah. where the, the interests and the money is coming in, a lot more has gone on that side. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you look at how this is like, there's a sense that this is now resolved, right? Yeah. Um, and and there, some kind of a deal was reached and immediately... The uh, the National Post headline was what so it's in chiefs ministers reach draft agreement in pipeline dispute. Yeah. They've reached an agreement in the pipeline dispute, which again set everyone up for rage when the next round of headlines said, hey, agreement on what title hasn't stopped the protests. That was in business in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. John Iveson at the National Post, a deal made in haste, but the blockades are still in place. So mm-hmm. was anything actually resolved on Canada.com? So I don't understand. You know, I think a lot of Canadians are saying, I was told that these protesters were illegitimate. I was told that they were being, you know, puppeted by others. I was told that they were just like five hereditary people who were behind this and the actual, you know, Wet'suwet'en aren't into this. Mm-hmm. You know, then I was told they wouldn't even show up to negotiation. Mm-hmm. I really, I was told that they were screwing up my economy. I was told that there was a blockade that was paralyzing the entire rail system. We talked about that last week. That was misreported. Yep. Now I'm told they finally did come to an agreement on the pipeline and there are still blockades. Mm-hmm. And and so what does that inspire but anger and rage? Yeah. And it was completely misleading given that it was a draft deal that uh, essentially set ground rules for more discussions over what to do about the pipeline. It actually had way more, far more to do with rights and title, but not addressing the gasoline pipeline at all. So yeah, I saw the National Post headline too, and it just... I felt like it was pretty irresponsible because there wasn't enough context. And so, like you said, it foments anger and division, given that people are saying, why are the blockades still up? So the reason why I wanted to get into this on like a media criticism show is because I'm I'm reading a lot of commentary from just news readers and Canada land listeners, and people saying like, look, this one guy tweeted out, I'm a big proponent of better treatment for First Nations communities. I believe in reparations and economic improvements for these communities. It makes it very difficult for me to maintain that support when those same communities attack my own economic well-being. I mean, like, that just strikes me as a very unempathetic 
view of this whole situation. And I can't help but think, just bringing it back to media criticism, is that that's fundamentally how it's framed in a lot of establishment publications. Establishment publications tend to have like a homogenous audience. And so that's why the stories are framed as such. And that kind of speaks to this guy's tweet where he's he's saying, like, you have to convince me as opposed to, you know, indigenous folks just standing up for their rights. And there's a lot of lack of context around this story. Like it actually conjures up a lot of like memories of coverage of brownface and blackface Mm -hmm. and how. I remember I was so I'm a teacher and one of my students, uh, I was teaching the day after the news broke and one of them actually said, like, I can tell you more about systemic racism in America uh, than I can about systemic racism in Canada. And so certain things like Delgamook, like, why do we not have uh, why is there no explainer that provides context in an establishment paper about this very landmark case? Um, why is there no explainer about how like First Nations govern and why have we not have consistently had dispatching reporters out to cover these First Nations, you know? Um, and now we find ourselves at this like very, you know, confronted with this very massive news story and very few establishment publications are equipped to handle it. Yeah, I think that, that it's a lesson that comes up again and again is that Indigenous representation in the newsroom is crucial for stories like this. Oh, totally. Well, the one thing that I'll say to respond to that is that there are like, not only there there's a moral imperative for greater diversity in media, but there's also business and civic cases. So there's like, given like how democracy is failing around the world and how news media around the world is str- are struggling to make money and generate new sources of revenue, why would you reject something that is so clearly, obviously going to be beneficial to your bottom line? This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Anita, is Canada broken? Well, I guess we're going to find out over the course of this episode. (laughs) No, we have, we don't, it's not up to you and me. Uh, We have numbers, we have stats, we have data. 
Uh, this is how, like, okay, so this was a, a massive front page story in the National Post. The number 69, very uh, waggishly and salaciously presented in italics in, in the cover of the National Post. 69% of Canadians agree. This is how you kind of, like, manufacture news. Like, there's no, like, breaking news, Canada is broken, or breaking news, like, 69% of people think Canada is broken. Mm-hmm. The National Post asked that question. Yeah. They created the foundation, the data foundation for this news story. I mean, you know, this is the newspapers do polls all the time, but I think it's relevant to look at the context here because after Canadians have been saturated in coverage, suggesting the candidate is very broken and that the people who broke it are the protesters. Mm -hmm. And then you ask, and the National Post and Post Media being, I think, foremost among the media that have been relentlessly suggesting that this country is absolutely broken because of the protesters and because of you know, the Post's agenda being, you know, leadership in Ottawa is not doing enough about this. Mm-hmm. And then you ask people, there's just so much uh, that you can kind of cook into a question like this based on when you ask it and what specifically you Absolutely. ask. So questions like, is Canada broken? Canada is not heading in the right direction, uh, was one of the questions. Uh, do you agree or disagree? Mm-hmm. Prime Minister Trudeau is not governing well. I think you could have anticipated that this would be the outcome of this, mm-hmm. given the media that we've been receiving. Yeah. It just feels like such a a leading question, particularly in this particular context. I also don't think it's constructive. I mean, we talk so much about polarization in around the world, polarization in media. And this I just don't see this as a productive survey question to readership. Like what what were you trying to get out of it? How does this serve the readers of The National Post is my question. I think there is something cynical about fomenting a division and then saying, look at how divided we yeah, are. Of course. Uh, and this isn't me like reaching. This is how they present it in the Post story. In the wake of regional discontent from the Western provinces and blockades jamming up the country's rail network, a towering majority of Canadians agree with the statement right now. Canada is broken. So, you know. This, therefore, that. What do you think, everybody? And people say yes. Mm-hmm. You know who doesn't agree with that? Who? Former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. Oh, okay. Toronto Star. And this is how you kind of create a new cycle. So yes. the Post is saying Canada is broken. Now the star goes to Chrétien and he responds. And, you know, I have a fondness for Jean Chrétien. There's a lot of things I don't like about Jean Chrétien. Mm-hmm. But there's something that I appreciate in a world of very polished politicians. Mm-hmm. His lack of polish. I used to think that it was his lack of polish with the English language. And then people told me, no, he's he's just as blunt in French. <laughs> I find it funny that you say the lack of polished politicians around the world, given how many populist kind of crude leaders we have. But <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. interesting because there's almost a... There's, there's a so that's a, actually a PR, could be a PR strategy There's a new well, kind of right? polish to being a populist. Though, yeah, absolutely. Which is about having no... Pol- but but Christian, <laughs> he really shrugged away this idea. Everybody calm down. Canada's not broken. Yeah. We're not broken at all. And he said, look... The native problems always have been there. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting, isn't it? I think Chrétien is right. Mm-hmm. I think that Canada is not broken. I think that maybe it's functioning exactly as it was intended to. Because what I take from his meaning is, let's just uh, agree that the way Canada has always worked is that we have a permanent native problem. Mm. And it's mm-hmm. always been a problem. And if you ever thought it was going to be fixed... Uh, you were dreaming, and Canada has worked just fine coexisting with our enduring, unsolvable native problem. I mean, I wouldn't say that we worked just fine. 
there's obviously so many indigenous communities that uh, have been grappling with a lot of systemic issues, systemic racism that have just been kind of shoved to the side. And so it's not that Canada is broken. It's that these issues are coming to the fore and we're actually discussing them. So I think it's so problematic that the Post is framing it in that way, because I actually see this as a sign of progress. We're actually coming together, sitting together at the table, having this kind of discourse in a way that we never have before in this country. Yeah, I mean, there were some developments out of this that I think have gone overlooked Mm -hmm. in the division. I don't know. I mean, we've been looking at this week after week, and I've been taking a granular look at the coverage. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be a while before I have like a thorough understanding of just what happened and is still happening. But like the parts are starting to describe the whole. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to get a sense of it. I don't know. Like, I want to go through some of the coverage with you and, and, and get your thoughts on how this has played out. Yeah. One thing that we saw recently was uh, this narrative in the media about um, outside agitators. Yes. And how the protests are sort of basically challenging the the legitimacy of the protests because expose some of the protesters are not indigenous people from these specific communities. And Mm -hmm. Global specifically had a report Mm -hmm. where shocking expose, there were indigenous people from the U.S. who came and uh, in solidarity took part in this. Do you have any ties with the First Nation? Like, are you First Nations yes, or Indigenous? you are? Okay, well, can you tell us which band you're associated with or which group? I'm Yurok from Northern California and Navajo from New Mexico. Oh, cool. So you're not Canadian? No, I'm not. Okay, so what brought you up here? I came here for school. In fact, she earned a PhD in philosophy and has been called one of Simon Fraser University's most outstanding graduate students. It was sort of presented as if this was something hidden or something. That is something that you heard, you know, elsewhere that, um, you know, this is just downtown white people who don't even know what they're doing, who are signal boosting this protest. And in addition to that, I think that there's been a narrative that to whatever extent it is actually indigenous people protesting, they're really misguided. And Mark Tui, the outgoing editor in chief of the Toronto Sun, he had a, an editorial, and, and, and why should his last bit of writing be any better than anything he's done there since beforehand, where he said, you know, First Nations need to get their act together. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like, they don't know what's good for them. Like, to the extent that they're actually doing this without some sort of foreign influence putting them up to it, or they're not oh, dupes geez. and puppets, yeah. they, they, they would be a lot smarter just to get with the program and get the benefits of, of, this, uh, of this pipeline. And they're being led poorly, um, and they're making bad decisions for themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a narrative that we've gotten pretty consistently, but Martin Lukacs did a really interesting analysis where he went back to the 1870s and found that this narrative of outside agitators, that whenever indigenous people actually mobilize for their own interests, they are delegitimized by the press. Yeah. And, and it's suggested that they don't know what, what they're doing. And he found, he actually like, we'll put this Twitter thread up on, uh, in, in the show notes, but mm-hmm. uh, he, he takes this like decade by decade, outside agitators, outside agitators. This is an old story. Yeah. So I, I, I take your point that Canada's not working well, but this is how it's worked to whatever extent it's worked mm-hmm. or, or for whoever it's worked for. Mm-hmm. We're doing the same stuff. So I think this is this kind of criticism of indigenous communities and the protesters is totally in line with the kind of stereotypes that are thrown at indigenous folks all the time. It's fundamentally dehumanizing, obviously. And I just, I think it's making a mountain out of molehill because these issues transcend even an indigenous identity, right? They they involve issues of the climate and also activist movements everywhere have always had like allyship. So it's never just been about 
you know, for example, Standing Rock had a lot of Black Lives Matter folks support Standing Rock protesters. Yeah. And so I don't really see a discrepancy or an issue with, you know, downtown elites, quote unquote, or, or white people joining in on something that they believe based on their principles. So why is this a story even is my question. I would suggest that it stems from an inability to imagine that indigenous protesters and indigenous leaders have agency to actually figure out what they're doing. And, and it's, it's really interesting if you, yeah. if you, if you track what's, what's happened and you want to talk about solidarity, you know, who's got solidarity is the pipeline has solidarity. Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, actually the CBC did a really good analysis of Facebook advertising and found that like $110,000 has been spent getting millions of impressions mm-hmm. trying to foment division and and criticize the protests and, and, and delegitimize them. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of like people who want Canadians to feel a certain way about the protests and yeah. where the, the interests and the money is coming in, a lot more has gone on that side. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you look at how this is like, there's a sense that this is now resolved, right? Yeah. Um, and and there, some kind of a deal was reached and immediately... The uh, the National Post headline was Wet'suwet'en chiefs ministers reach draft agreement in pipeline dispute. Yeah. They've reached an agreement in the pipeline dispute, which again set everyone up for rage when the next round of headlines said, hey, agreement on Wet'suwet'en title hasn't stopped the protests. That was in business in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. John Iveson at the National Post, a deal made in haste, but the blockades are still in place. So mm-hmm. was anything actually resolved on Canada.com? So I don't understand. You know, I think a lot of Canadians are saying, I was told that these protesters were illegitimate. I was told that they were being, you know, puppeted by others. I was told that they were just like five hereditary people who were behind this and the actual, you know, Wet'suwet'en aren't into this. Mm-hmm. You know, then I was told they wouldn't even show up to negotiation. Mm-hmm. I really, I was told that they were screwing up my economy. I was told that there was a blockade that was paralyzing the entire rail system. We talked about that last week. That was misreported. Yep. Now I'm told they finally did come to an agreement on the pipeline and there are still blockades. Mm-hmm. And and so what does that inspire but anger and rage? Yeah. And it was completely misleading given that it was a draft deal that uh, essentially set ground rules for more discussions over what to do about the pipeline. It actually had way more, far more to do with rights and title, but not addressing the gasoline pipeline at all. So yeah, I saw the National Post headline too, and it just... I felt like it was pretty irresponsible because there wasn't enough context. And so, like you said, it foments anger and division, given that people are saying, why are the blockades still up? So the reason why I wanted to get into this on like a media criticism show is because I'm I'm reading a lot of commentary from just news readers and Canada land listeners, people saying like, look, this one guy tweeted out, I'm a big proponent of better treatment for First Nations communities. I believe in reparations and economic improvements for these communities. It makes it very difficult for me to maintain that support when those same communities attack my own economic well-being. I mean, like, that just strikes me as a very unempathetic view of this whole situation. And I can't help but think, just bringing it back to media criticism, is that that's fundamentally how it's framed in a lot of establishment publications. Establishment publications tend to have like a homogenous audience. And so that's why the stories are framed as such. And that kind of speaks to this guy's tweet where he's he's saying, like, you have to convince me as opposed to, you know, indigenous folks just standing up for their rights. And there's a lot of lack of context around this story. Like it actually conjures up a lot of like memories of coverage of brownface and blackface Mm -hmm. and how. I remember I was, so I'm a teacher, uh, one of my students, uh, I was teaching the day after the news broke and one of them actually said, like, I can tell you more about systemic racism in America uh, than I can about systemic racism in Canada. And so certain things like Delgamook, like, why do we not have 
Uh, why is there no explainer that provides context in an establishment paper about this very landmark case? Um, why is there no explainer about how like First Nations govern and why have we not have consistently had dispatching reporters out to cover these First Nations? You know, um, and now we find ourselves at this like very, you know, confronted with this very massive news story and very few establishment publications are equipped to handle it. Yeah, I think that, that it's a lesson that comes up again and again is that Indigenous representation in the newsroom is crucial for stories like this. Oh, totally. Well, the one thing that I'll say to respond to that is that there are like, not only there there's a moral imperative for greater diversity in media, but there's also business and civic cases. So there's like, given like how democracy is failing around the world and how news media around the world are, str- are struggling to make money and generate new sources of revenue, why would you reject something that is so clearly, obviously going to be beneficial to your bottom line? Anita, uh, it's your first time joining me here for Canada Land Shortcuts. Sometimes, every time, we like to duly note things that we think people should take more notice of than perhaps they otherwise might have. Mm -hmm. Do you have something to duly note today? Yeah, I absolutely do. It is a little self-serving, but I think it's valuable for your readership or your listenership to hear. So CWA Canada, which is the country's only all-media union, um, and it represents 6,000 media workers at the CBC, Thomson Reuters, uh, CP, Vice Canada, have endorsed um, Canadian Journalists of Colour and Canadian Association of Black Journalists calls to action for uh, strengthening newsroom diversity. So CWA Canada President Martin O'Hanlon said, we believe that in order to properly identify and tell the stories important to Canadians, our newsrooms must reflect the diversity of Canadians, both racial and socioeconomic. So that's, you know, it's a pretty significant thing that that happened because, like I said, it uh, CWA represents a lot of major media institutions across the country. And for me, this is really heartening that we're moving in the right direction. And hopefully this will lead to, you know, media institutions actually walking the walk as opposed to paying lip service to diversity. That said, I do acknowledge that there has been a lot of efforts made, but I just don't think it's being addressed in a really systemic um, way. And so that's why I have these seven calls to action that will hopefully guide media institutions in terms of their diversity and inclusion efforts. Did you catch this tweet from Rashmi Nair? No. Last week? So Rashmi Nair, of course, longtime host on air presence on CBC. Yeah. And it came as news to me uh, through a tweet. There's a photograph of her with a gentleman who's tagged, and it's it's Amar Khan. And what she tweets is just a couple of former CBCers chatting about how media workplaces can make their POC employees feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And then linking to a Canada Land story, which is about the guy she's photographed with, Amar Khan. And I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, Amar Khan. I remember Amar. He was a CBC employee who tweeted... Uh, a condemnation of Don Cherry's racism, xenophobia, and mm-hmm. then um, fired, didn't have his contract renewed, uh, something like that. It was it was because of that. I think that, that, that's confirmed. That's why he's no longer with the CBC. Mm-hmm. And so now Reshmi, who I, I just sort of always thought was going to be at the CBC, is with Amr, and uh, she's now gone from the CBC, and they're having a conversation about how media workplaces can make their, their uh, journalists of color feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, this happens from time to time. And I, I followed up with Rashmi if there's anything else you want to talk about at the moment there isn't. Sonny Dillon left the Globe and Mail yep. and I think made some kind of, um, talked a little bit about how uh, being a journalist of color there, the discontents of that and the kind of stories that he was being asked to cover and the ones that he wasn't. But, mm-hmm. but then there's kind of like a reluctance to talk further and I respect that. But I hope that what you're doing 
brings us a bit more out in the open. I want to have these conversations with those people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I I feel like at the end of the day, who I really want to hear from are management level folks at major media companies in the country because they are industry leaders. They set the tone. They set, um, you know, they, they set the bar. And I think it's incumbent on them to embrace diversity, not just in terms of hiring, but also in terms of, you know, like news gathering practices to better reflect Canadian society. And it's it's high time now. It's uh, like you said, these efforts have been I'm not the first person to try to put this to the fore. This has been happening for decades. But just given how abysmal some of the coverage we've seen, like of what Soatin as well as, you know, brownface and blackface, I think it's high time that, you know, we start walking the walk. Duly noted. I have something very serious to talk about today for Duly Noted. Mm-hmm. Uh, condo marketing. Okay. <laughs> there was a uh, condo marketing always uh, pretty awful. I mean, it's always, you know, more glass boxes in the sky. And they're like, well, what are we going to call this one? And, and you know, yeah. usually playing with tropes of like how amazing your life is going to be in this downtown setting and why it's worth, you know, starting at $400,000. Jack Condos was, um, was dragged, this condo marketing campaign, because it basically just made a joke out of like you in this moment of housing precarity and, and people being pushed out of the city. Yeah. Downtown Toronto living. And, and there's this picture of like a millennial on a staircase and some stock photo and in, in a, just a real vomiting of different fonts <laughs> written on the wall is like watching an artsy movie at the Carlton cinema karaoke. Check out my OVO tattoo food trucks. Oh, the six. Let's just Uber it. <laughs> Instead, just went to Nuit Blanche. I'm pretty much an aristocrat now. Really just turning some vision of Toronto life for young people into this kind of uh, disgusting pastiche. And uh, this one was weird. Go Rams Go is one of the uh, trash pandas. Go Rams Go. So I think rather predictably, every salty hipster young person critic, anybody who feels some sense of like, that it's not just this like 24-7 party um, living in downtown Toronto. Uh, a lot of people made fun of this. Yeah. You know, as they should. As they should. <laughs> and as maybe as maybe they were intended to, as maybe this campaign wanted them yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Because then the campaign revealed its punchline, a new billboard for Jack Condos, You Don't Know Jack. Ah. Uh. The same kind of stock photo of a hipster this time, literally dabbing while skateboarding. <laughs> and in the same <laughs> rainbow of fonts, quoting from the critics, Toronto is cringing. So many fonts. How do you do, fellow kids? Serious question. Who are the Rams? An ad campaign made by 45-year-olds. Now, I have actually spent a lot of time trying to figure out if they just like rolled with the punches and said, wow, we are getting killed online how do we improvise a solution to this disastrous campaign that blew up on our face? Yeah. Or, Anita, I wonder if this wasn't the plan from the start. Yeah, it sounds like it is. I, I, ca- yeah. I kind of think so. And I kind of think that like the giveaway is the Rams. Let's go check out a Rams game. Like that's, Yeah, that's random. That's like there, there and there is a Rams uh, sporting team, I am told. Oh, there is. Uh, I, I am told that there is a sporting outfit called the Rams. But no, if you're putting together all of your like food trucks, trash pandas, going to a Rams game. No, it's the wraps, right? Yeah. And, and I think that when you when you when you go with the Rams, you are at like like that that's the giveaway. That's it was otherwise yeah. pretty well executed that you could really believe that this was like, they actually thought this was a cool campaign. But that one is the giveaway to me. Yeah. And everybody fell for it. And all of you people on Twitter 
who like dragged this campaign, you are now part of the campaign. The joke is on you because whoever yeah. talks about a condo marketing campaign, but this one got so much coverage. That's you were, fair. You were mobilized, people on Twitter. Well, there was a condo marketing for condos called Young and Rich. Do you remember that? That oh, I feel yeah. like there, which was like. There was no viral campaign, but I feel like that's a missed opportunity to like demolish that campaign because it was just so off-putting when I saw it. So I figured like maybe you know, this is like a trick. Maybe they were they were asking for it too. I feel like that was actually earnest, which is why I mean like that was like years ago. I feel like it was earnest, which is why it's totally tanked. But if this was actually a marketing ploy from the beginning, I think that's pretty ingenious because I would actually if I were you know I would feel like I would come around. I'd be like, yeah, they they actually do get us. <laughs> yeah, I think they won. Duly noted. Anita, uh, it's your first time joining me here for Canada Land Shortcuts. Sometimes, every time, we like to duly note things that we think people should take more notice of than perhaps they otherwise might have. Mm -hmm. Do you have something to duly note today? Yeah, I absolutely do. It is a little self-serving, but I think it's valuable for your readership or your listenership to hear. So CWA Canada, which is the country's only all media union, um, and it represents 6,000 media workers at the CBC, Thomson Reuters, uh, CP, Vice Canada, have endorsed um, Canadian Journalists of Colour and Canadian Association of Black Journalists calls to action for uh, strengthening newsroom diversity. So CWA Canada President Martin O'Hanlon said, we believe that in order to properly identify and tell the stories important to Canadians, our newsrooms must reflect the diversity of Canadians, both racial and socioeconomic. So that's, you know, it's a pretty significant thing that that happened because, like I said, it uh, CWA represents a lot of major media institutions across the country. And for me, this is really heartening that we're moving in the right direction. And hopefully this will lead to, you know, media institutions actually walking the walk as opposed to paying lip service to diversity. That said, I do acknowledge that there has been a lot of efforts made, but I just don't think it's being addressed in a really systemic um, way. And so that's why I have these seven calls to action that will hopefully guide media institutions in terms of their diversity and inclusion efforts. Did you catch this tweet from Rashmi Nair? No. Last week? So Rashmi Nair, of course, longtime host on air presence on CBC. Yeah. And it came as news to me uh, through a tweet. There's a photograph of her with a gentleman who's tagged, and it's it's Omar Khan. And what she tweets is just a couple of former CBCers chatting about how media workplaces can make their POC employees feel more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And then linking to a Canada Land story, which is about the guy she's photographed with, Omar Khan. And I was yeah. like, oh, yeah, Omar Khan. I remember Omar. He was a CBC employee who tweeted... Uh, a condemnation of Don Cherry's racism and xenophobia and mm -hmm. then um, fired, didn't have his contract renewed, uh, something like that. It was it was because of that. I think that, that, that's confirmed. That's why he's no longer with the CBC. Mm -hmm. And so now Reshmi, who I, I just sort of always thought was going to be at the CBC, is with Amr and uh, she's now gone from the CBC and they're having a conversation about how media workplaces can make their, their uh, journalists of color feel more comfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, this happens from time to time, and I, I followed up with Rashmi if there's anything else you want to talk about at the moment there isn't. Sonny Dillon left the Globe and Mail yep. and I think made some kind of, um, talked a little bit about how uh, being a journalist of color there, the discontents of that and the kind of stories that he was being asked to cover and the ones that he wasn't. But, mm -hmm. but then there's kind of like a reluctance to talk further and I respect that, but I hope that what you're doing 
brings us a bit more out in the open. I, I want to have these conversations with those people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I feel like at the end of the day, I who I really want to hear from are management level folks at major media companies in the country because they are industry leaders. They set the tone. They set, um, you know, they, they set the bar. And I think it's incumbent on them to embrace diversity, not just in terms of hiring, but also in terms of, you know, like news gathering practices to better reflect Canadian society. And it's it's high time now. It's like you said, these efforts have been I'm not the first person to try to put this to the fore. This has been happening for decades. But just given how abysmal some of the coverage we've seen, like of what so it's in, as well as, you know, brown face and black face, I think it's high time that, you know, we start walking the walk. Duly noted. I have something very serious to talk about today for Duly Noted. Mm-hmm. Uh, condo marketing. Okay. <laughs> there was a uh, condo marketing always uh, pretty awful. I mean, so it's always, you know, more glass boxes in the sky. And they're like, well, what are we going to call this one? And, and you know, yeah. usually playing with tropes of like how amazing your life is going to be in this downtown setting and why it's worth, you know, starting at $400,000. Jack Condos was, um, was dragged, this condo marketing campaign, because it basically just made a joke out of like you in this moment of housing precarity and, and people being pushed out of the city. Yeah. Downtown Toronto living. And, and there's this picture of like a millennial on a staircase and some stock photo and in, in a, just a real vomiting of different fonts <laughs> Wr- written on the wall is like watching an artsy movie at the Carlton cinema karaoke. Check out my OVO tattoo. Food trucks, oh, the six. <laughs> Let's just Uber it instead. Just went to Nuit Blanche. I'm pretty much an aristocrat now. Really just turning some vision of Toronto life for young people into this kind of uh, disgusting pastiche. And uh, this one was weird. Go Rams Go is one of the uh, trash pandas. Go Rams Go. So I think rather predictably... Every salty hipster young person critic, yeah. anybody who feels some sense of like that, it's, it's not just this like twenty four seven party um, living in downtown Toronto. Uh, or a lot of people made fun of this. Yeah, you know, as they should, as they should, <laughs> and as maybe as maybe they were intended to, as maybe this campaign wanted them yeah. to. Yeah, yeah. Because then the campaign revealed its punchline: a new billboard. For Jack Condos, you don't know Jack. Ah. The same kind of stock photo of a hipster, this time literally dabbing while skateboarding. (laughs) And in the same (laughs) rainbow of fonts, quoting from the critics, Toronto is cringing. So many fonts. How do you do, fellow kids? Serious question. Who are the Rams? An ad campaign made by 45-year-olds. Now- I have actually spent a lot of time trying to figure out if they just like rolled with the punches and said, wow, we are getting killed online. How do we improvise a solution to this disastrous campaign that blew up on our face? Yeah. Or, Anita, I wonder if this wasn't the plan from the start. Yeah, it sounds like it is. I, I, ca- yeah. I kind of think so. And I kind of think that like the giveaway is the Rams. Let's go check out a Rams game. Like that's, Yeah, that's random. That's like there, there and there is a Rams uh, sporting team, I'm told. Oh, there is. Uh, I, I am told that there is a sporting outfit called the Rams. But no, if you're putting together all <laughs> of your like food trucks, trash pandas, going to a Rams game. No, it's the wraps, right? Yeah. And, and I think that when you when you when you go with the Rams, you are at like like that that's the giveaway. That's it was otherwise yeah. pretty well executed that you could really believe that this was like they actually thought this was a cool campaign. But that one is the giveaway to me. Yeah. And everybody fell for it. And all of you people on Twitter 
who like dragged this campaign, you are now part of the campaign. The joke is on you because whoever yeah. talks about a condo marketing campaign, but this one got so much coverage. That's you were, fair. You were mobilized, people on Twitter. Well, there was a condo marketing for condos called Young and Rich. Do you remember that? That oh, I feel yeah. like there, was, which was like. There was no viral campaign, but I feel like that's a missed opportunity to like demolish that campaign because it was just so off-putting when I saw it. So I figured like maybe you know, this is like a trick. Maybe they were they were asking for it too. I feel like that was actually earnest, which is why I mean like that was like years ago. I feel like it was earnest, which is why it's totally tanked. But if this was actually a marketing ploy from the beginning, I think that's pretty ingenious because I would actually if I were you know I would feel like I would come around. I'd be like, yeah, they they actually do get us. <laughs> yeah, I think they won. Duly noted. Anita, did you read the memo from CBC Management? Yes, I did. They are going to restructure. Yes, I heard. Exciting stuff. <laughs> what we are introducing today is a shift from a siloed traditional media operation to a truly audience-centric content company. Mm-hmm. As you know, currently, CBC is built on a traditional platform-based model. And while we do have an innovative spirit... It is sometimes encumbered by silos. We need to move to a more audience-centric approach where we are ultimately working together as one CBC. I feel like I've read versions of that memo for the past 20 years, and it can be difficult to divine from the management baffle gab what exactly is changing or what they mean or what they're criticizing about the past or what it's going to be in the future. Mm -hmm. But it does seem like there actually is a big change going on. Yeah. And there's some other external things we'll talk about. What did you make of this announcement? So I was really excited because it shows that the CBC is being a little more forward thinking. Um, and an audience centric approach to news gathering has been a big trend in media around the world for the past five to 10 years. And that's actually happened with the rise of data and analytics. You start to see what your audience wants. And then we've kind of moved beyond page views now. We're looking for more meaningful engagement because meaningful engagement means more revenue. And now that, you know, a lot of you know, North American audiences in particular are extremely diverse, multicultural. It's there's just a necessity now to focus more on niche audiences to cater and serve them uh, with editorial products that actually speak to their own experiences. So for me, this is really good. I feel like CBC is maybe a little bit behind on the curve because this has been happening for the past five to 10 years. But it does hearten me that they're actually focused on this. Because it does also speak to, you know, my, you know, previously the calls to action around diversity that I, I'm championing. Are you sure that what they mean by audience centric is the same thing as what you mean by audience centric? Yeah. And I don't even mean because what I mean is not just I'm not even just talking about identity based like audiences. I'm also talking about geographic audiences. I'm sure they're referring to rural Canadians as well. Um, they could be talking about the urban indigenous or they could be talking about, you know, a community like Scarborough and the GTA. So I really hope that that's what they're they're thinking, because I'm somebody who next week I'm going to be teaching an executive certificate at the City University of New York called Leading the Audience Centric Newsroom. So I really hope that they are thinking what I'm thinking, because, you know, this is one of my areas of expertise. I mean, they could be talking about anything. I really hope that. I mean, I, I don't. I what is it? I mean, how do you so. not be audience centric? Like, like, what what are, you, what are you doing it for if not well, for the audience? But no, I mean, I, I advertising. I, that's what I mean. Like, yeah. you know, CBC has government funding and ads, and that's what it is. It's a shift from advertising towards more focusing on the readership, which is great. I mean, you need if you're advertising focused, then you're really audience focused because you need big numbers. Uh, 
I don't know. I, you know, know. I, right? Like, but it, the, one of the criticisms of CBC in the past has been that they're too uh, focused in in what they want to say and not like you know the national has just been bleeding. It's been collapsing numbers, so they're not audience centric because yeah. some experiment that they've been running on how to re envision the newscast yeah. has been more important to them than their audience. Completely, well, it's, like right? it's Top down. So if they were more advertising, I don't know. You could like the thing is, it's it's like in riddles, like and this talk of de siloing, which mm-hmm. is great. The idea of a more like cohesive CBC mm-hmm. where it's less like fiefdoms, which is how it's been run for a long time. Mm-hmm. They've been trying to break that down for a long time. And yeah. that's a cultural thing. I, I guess it's just kind of like, um, what is this going to mean in practice? The way that the CBC talks about the CBC is so different than the way that Canadians talk about the CBC. Like, like, and even in the media, when they're, you know, when Tony Berman, former news boss at CBC, was... Mm-hmm. Um, and Al Jazeera and elsewhere was writing about this in the star. He was at least practical. He was like, uh, and saying some things that most of which I agree with, like, let's get rid of drama. Let's get rid of the scripted stuff. Let's focus on news. We're in a news crisis. CBC needs to do news. He also said, let's get rid of sports, which I'm not a sports fan, but I, I actually disagree. I think that, I think that a public broadcaster, I, I agree with John Doyle, who was writing about this. Like mm-hmm. we, we invest in sports in Canada and, and if no one's going to watch them, it seems like that's part of the public service mandate. Yeah. The scripted stuff, I don't know where that... Anyhow, but at least you're talking about programming in the general conversation about what the CBC should do. Yeah. When the CBC talks about it, they're talking about things, and it's coming clear to me talking to you that there is a, I guess, within academic circles, a discourse around audience centrism. And I I hope that that's the same thing as within management circles, that that it's the same set of ideas that are being discussed. It's not even in academic circles. Like this is industry wide. Like I've been to. Can you make that practical for me? Like what would what would what would a a programming decision to be more audience centric look like? So it would be essentially like a focus on subscription and membership. As so, when you're pandering to advertisers, you are not serving your audience because you're actually concerned about getting advertising dollars. So the content or the journalism that you're producing is actually serving that audience as opposed to directly the the needs of your your readership. So the way it works for audience centric approaches to news gathering is that there's much more deeper consultations with communities around the kind of coverage that they want to hear and see. Um, there's So that's like in-person as well as online engagement. And the other thing is like just a focus on identifying and segmenting audiences. So just saying like, okay, this is, you know, maybe the LGBTQ plus community is a community that we haven't gotten a lot of traction with. So we're going to double down and focus on, you know, figuring out what kind of coverage they want. So that's what, that's fundamentally what it means essentially. Okay, I totally yeah. get it now. Yeah. I, and I think I'm. I think I'm on board. I think I've been on board. Yes. It's yes. If everything in the past, if the business model was all advertising dependent, then exactly. Yes, you need your your audience is just some amorphous mass, and you need more and more of them. You don't care who they are. But yes. if if the business model is directed directly to the audience, then you're in much more closer dialogue with them about what kind of coverage they want, Absolutely. representing them in the coverage. I'm down. That yes. sounds great to me if that's what they're going to do. Yeah, and it's a virtuous cycle because then you know people pay for the coverage that they are actually asking for. Yeah. Right. Yeah, CBC the payer. Like I, I like uh, CBC's audience are constituents. They're they're citizens. They're not yes. customers. You know, and that's how I, I hope that's how. Even calling them the audience doesn't feel right to me really? from a CBC perspective. They're like stakeholders. You know, I think I think that like public broadcasting should think of its audience not necessarily as an audience. Fair, but they also have. I mean, like CBC has merch. Like they also have. There's a lot of stuff that they do that's actually like. That treats their audience as like you know paying customers, customers yeah. right? It's it's well, although I understand what you mean by stakeholders, I think there's a you know that's definitely 
accurate, but we're all paying customers by force. Yeah, <laughs> but, but but they're also like trying to sell you like you know uh, gem subscriptions and things like that. So yeah, I, and that and that is troubling to me because it suggests sort of like two tiered citizenry. Like CBC has like yeah, we're here to serve Canadians, but these are the Canadians who pay us twice, and <laughs> and they matter more, which is inevitable when you've got uh, another big thing at the CBC is that Jennifer McGuire yes is out, and um, Jennifer McGuire was the. Uh, editor-in-chief. I think she had like four titles, general manager, news boss. She was like the the definitely the head of their news operations, mm-hmm. but I think also had input on everything that the English CBC was doing. Anita, I want to talk a little bit about Jennifer McGuire mm-hmm. because in typical Canadian fashion, nobody is really exploring why she's out and nobody is really going through what her tenure has entailed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we tend to be very, very gracious and nice to senior people in the news business as they set off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote to staff, I have had a long career passionately serving the mission of our public broadcaster in various roles. And while I love this place, it's time for me to spread my wings and imagine a life outside of the CBC while I am at the height of my skills and while I have some runway left in my career life to do it. Anita, to me, Jennifer McGuire will be remembered as a journalist who sold favorable news coverage to Parks Canada. We have the contract, a $45,000 payment from Parks Canada to the CBC, and in the contract, they will get a documentary on the National. I don't know how she survived that. I don't know why that was not just a huge scandal. I think that's just Mm -hmm. inexcusable. You don't sell favorable coverage to the government. Jennifer McGuire is a news boss who really, more than anyone else at the management level, protected the celebrity hosts of the CBC uh, and and was about that culture and uh, you know mm. hushing up would be misconduct uh, scandals working to rally around these big personalities promoting them and then protecting them and to give a specific example when uh, a journalist dared to criticize Peter Mansbridge it wasn't me I'm talking about Dan Rowe who's then the uh, editor of J Source mm. wrote a piece quite reasonably questioning Peter Mansbridge's judgment. When he took money from the oil sands while mm-hmm. covering the oil sands, mm-hmm. who rides to Mansbridge's defense? But Jennifer McGuire, using the CBC, like on her editor's blog, like a very high perch, and denounced and attacked a journalist, Dan Rowe, for his baseless attack and saying that he he's basically a hypocrite. He doesn't live up to his own journalistic ethics by uh, accusing Mansbridge of some sort of um, conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Mansbridge, as McGuire wrote at the time, is an impressive icon of our profession. Now, of course, the CBC then changed their policy on those speaking engagements mm-hmm. and, and blocked Mansbridge and everybody else from getting paid uh, speaking gigs from the oil sands or anyone. So I guess Dan Rowe's criticism was legitimate, but I think he's still waiting for his apology from Jennifer McGuire. <laughs> so I, I don't know. Um, it seems to fall to me to uh, have the bad taste to say nasty things about somebody when they're... <laughs> You know, so soliciting, uh, you know, a golden wristwatch or something like that. You know, like Simon Haupt writes about media for the Globe. You know, uh, he fell into the line of saying, you know, she was one of the very few news executives in this country who felt it her duty to talk to the press about the decisions that she and her team made. You've got to respect that. Anita, Jennifer McGuire didn't even say no comment when I asked her about various 
news stories, like, mm. like, like stories that actually like would lead to CBC changing their policies. Yeah. I would ask her for comment. The only time she got back to me, she got back to me like very quickly, like that day was when she was directly accused of something, implicated by somebody, mm-hmm. when she got back very quickly to, to deny it. Mm-hmm. Other than that, the idea that she considered it her duty. So I'll remember her as a journalist who did not answer questions from other journalists. Mm-hmm. I mean, this speaks more systemic issue in Canadian media, which is actually, I think you are the one I'll be quoting when you said Canadian media is less like an industry, more like a club. And so, I mean, like we all know Canadian media is really consolidated. It's very insular. And it's, you know, it, when I worked in media in the U.S., you could you could be a journalist and criticize the Times because there's so many other places you could work, right? Yeah. It wasn't the be-all that ends all. But in a lot of ways, like this is why media criticism in this country is so weak because people are so reticent to, you know, call out the one place that actually has, you know, is still hiring journalists that is still, you know, producing a lot of coverage. And that's a huge problem because obviously, as we've seen from, you know, during McGuire's tenure, there was also, you know, the Gian Gomeshi scandal. What ends up happening is that people who are abusive and toxic get protected and they remain in high places and there's no justice. So, yeah, and that's terrible in particular for a media outlet that's supposed to hold, you know, to hold people in power accountable. You know, it's just completely hypocritical. So. I mean, if anything, it's worse than it's ever been in that the CBC is is standing, the last thing standing is like a source of good, high-paying, steady jobs. Mm-hmm. Everybody else, even if you get one, you got to be worried that it's going to be gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, who in this industry can afford to talk shit about exactly. any CBC executive and have that door slam shut for the rest of your career? It's just like a non-starter. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I like to think that things have gotten a little bit better with being able to, uh, you know, not just within Canada, but other people have found their voice. And a little we, bit. Yeah. I, a little bit. Sure. But the dynamics are actually a bit more restrictive and prohibitive. Yeah. Well, uh, given that, like, you know, some of our, you know, longest standing papers are just hemorrhaging like money and resources, it's really like increasingly when I have conversations with my friends in media, it's like CBC is the only place you can really work. And so there's this like big behemoth that you can never criticize. And that's, I mean, that's fundamentally, you know, not great for CBC as well, like not only internally for the culture, but also for the journalism, right? Like people should work in a place where they feel comfortable criticizing their superiors. You know, there should be some sort of dialogue. So I do feel like, you know, there's a digital media ecosystem that's emerging. Things are definitely changing, you know, with the rise of places like the logic and discourse but it's still like small um, Mm -hmm. in comparison to establishment so we still have a ways to go Anita thank you thank you hey that's Canada Land Shortcuts for this week it has never been easier to support Canada Land and to get ad-free versions of this podcast. Just click on the link right there in the podcast show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. Just takes a second and then bloop, you've got the premium gold Canada Land feed right on your podcatching app. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Where can people find you, Anita? At Nita. That's N-E-E-E-D-A. That's three E's. N-3-E-S-D-A. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and also, if you want to follow Canadian Association of Black Journalists, uh, they're at, at C-A-B-J Media. Our website is canadalandshow.com or go to coolmules.ca to check out that show's website. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Anita, did you read the memo? 
from CBC Management. Yes, I did. They are going to restructure. Yes, I heard. Exciting stuff. <laughs> what we are introducing today is a shift from a siloed traditional media operation to a truly audience-centric content company. Mm-hmm. As you know, currently, CBC is built on a traditional platform-based model. And while we do have an innovative spirit, it is sometimes encumbered by silos. We need to move to a more audience-centric approach where we are ultimately working together as one CBC. I feel like I've read versions of that memo for the past 20 years, and it can be difficult to divine from the management baffle gab what exactly is changing or what they mean or what they're criticizing about the past or what it's going to be in the future. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like there actually is a big change going on. Yeah. And there's some other external things we'll talk about. What did you make of this announcement? So I was really excited because it shows that the CBC is being a little more forward thinking. Um, and an audience centric approach to news gathering has been a big trend in media around the world for the past five to 10 years. And that's actually happened with the rise of data and analytics. You start to see what your audience wants. And then we've kind of moved beyond page views now. We're looking for more meaningful engagement because meaningful engagement means more revenue. And now that, you know, a lot of you know, North American audiences in particular are extremely diverse, multicultural. It's there's just a necessity now to focus more on niche audiences to cater and serve them uh, with editorial products that actually speak to their own experiences. So for me, this is really good. I feel like CBC is maybe a little bit behind on the curve because this has been happening for the past five to 10 years. But it does hearten me that they're actually focused on this. Because it does also speak to, you know, my, you know, previously the calls to action around diversity that I, I'm championing. Are you sure that what they mean by audience centric is the same thing as what you mean by audience centric? Yeah. And I don't even mean because what I mean is not just I'm not even just talking about identity based like audiences. I'm also talking about geographic audiences. I'm sure they're referring to rural Canadians as well. Um, they could be talking about the urban indigenous or they could be talking about, you know, a community like Scarborough and the GTA. So I really hope that that's what they're they're thinking, because I'm somebody who next week I'm going to be teaching an executive certificate at the City University of New York called Leading the Audience Centric Newsroom. So I really hope that they are thinking what I'm thinking, because, you know, this is one of my areas of expertise. I mean, they could be talking about anything. I really hope that. I mean, I, I don't. I what is it? I mean, how do you so. not be audience centric? Like, like, what what are, we, what are you doing it for if not well, for the audience? But no, I mean, I, I advertising. I, that's what I mean. Like, yeah. you know, CBC has government funding and ads, and that's what it is. It's a shift from advertising towards more focusing on the readership, which is great. I mean, you need if you're advertising focused, then you're really audience focused because you need big numbers. Uh, I don't know. I, you know no. I, <laughs> right? Like, but it, one of the criticisms of CBC in the past has been that they're too uh, focused in in what they want to say and not like, you know, the national has just been bleeding. It's been collapsing numbers. So they're not audience centric because some experiment that they've been running on how to re-envision the newscast has been more important to them than their audience. Completely. Well, it's it's top down. So if they were more advertising, I don't know. You could like the thing is, it's it's like in riddles like and this talk of de-siloing, which Mm -hmm. is great. The idea of a more like cohesive CBC Mm -hmm. where it's less like fiefdoms, which is how it's been run for a long time. Mm-hmm. They've been trying to break that down for a long time. And yeah. that's a cultural thing. I, I guess it's just kind of like, um, what is this going to mean in practice? The way that the CBC talks about the CBC is so different than the way that Canadians talk about the CBC. Like, like, and even in the media, when they're, you know, when Tony Berman, former news boss at CBC was, mm-hmm. um, and Al Jazeera and elsewhere was writing about this in the star. He was at least practical. He was like, uh, and saying some things that most of which I agree with, like, 
Let's get rid of drama. Let's get rid of the scripted stuff. Let's focus on news. We're in a news crisis. CBC needs to do news. He also said, let's get rid of sports, which I'm not a sports fan, but I, I actually disagree. I think that I think that a public broadcaster, I, I agree with John Doyle, who was writing about this, like mm-hmm. we, we invest in sports in Canada and, and if no one's going to watch them, it seems like that's part of the public service mandate. Yeah. The scripted stuff, I don't know where that, anyhow, but at least you're talking about programming in the general conversation about what the CBC should do. Yeah. When the CBC talks about it, they're talking about things, and it's coming clear to me talking to you that there is a, I guess, within academic circles, a discourse around audience centrism. And I, I hope that that's the same thing as within management circles, that, yeah. that it's the same set of ideas that are being discussed. Absolutely. It's not even in academic circles. Like, this is industry-wide. Like, I've been to... I've Can you make that about, practical for me? Like, what yeah. would, it, what would, it, what would a, a programming decision to be more audience-centric look like? So, it would be essentially, like, a focus on subscription and membership. As So... When you're pandering to advertisers, you are not serving your audience because you're actually concerned about getting advertising dollars. So the content or the journalism that you're producing is actually serving that audience as opposed to directly the the needs of your your readership. So the way it works for audience-centric approaches to news gathering is that there's much more deeper consultations with communities around the kind of coverage that they want to hear and see. Um, there's So that's like in-person as well as online engagement. And the other thing is like just a focus on identifying and segmenting audience. So just saying like, okay, this is, you know, maybe the LGBTQ plus community is a community that we haven't gotten a lot of traction with. So we're going to double down and focus on, you know, figuring out what kind of coverage they want. So that's what that's fundamentally what it means, essentially. Okay, I totally yeah. get it now. Yeah. I, and I think I'm I think I'm on board. I think I've been on board. Yes. It's yes. If everything in the past, if the business model was all advertising dependent, then exactly. yes, you need your, your audience is just some amorphous mass and you need more and more of them. You don't care who they are. But yes. if, if the business model is directed directly to the audience, then you're in much more closer dialogue with them about what kind of coverage they want, Absolutely. representing them in the coverage. I'm down. That yes. sounds great to me if that's what they're going to do. Yeah. And it's a virtuous cycle because then, you know, people pay for the coverage that they are actually asking for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. CBC, the payer, like I, I like uh, CBC's audience are constituents. They're, they're citizens. They're not yes. customers. You know, that's how I, I hope that's how even calling them the audience doesn't feel right to me really? from a CBC perspective. They're like stakeholders. You know, I, th- I think that like public broadcasting should think of its audience not necessarily as an audience. Fair, but they also have, I mean, like CBC has merch. Like they also have, there's a lot of stuff that they do that's actually like, that treats their audience as like, you know, paying customers, customers yeah. right? It's, it's well, although I understand what you mean by stakeholders, I think there's a, like, you know, that's definitely accurate, but. We're all paying customers by force. Yeah. <laughs> but, but but they're also like trying to sell you like, you know, uh, gem subscriptions and things like that. So, yeah. I, and, that, and that is troubling to me because it suggests sort of like two-tiered citizenry. Like CBC has like, yeah, we're here to serve Canadians, but these are the Canadians who pay us twice and, <laughs> and they matter more, which is inevitable when you've got. Uh, another big thing at the CBC is that Jennifer McGuire yes. is out. And um, Jennifer McGuire was the... Uh, editor-in-chief. I think she had like four titles, general manager, news boss. She was like the the definitely the head of their news operations, mm-hmm. but I think also had input on everything that the English CBC was doing. Anita, I want to talk a little bit about Jennifer McGuire mm-hmm. because in typical Canadian fashion, nobody is really exploring why she's out and nobody is really going through what her tenure has entailed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we tend to be very, very gracious and nice to senior people in the news business as they set off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wrote to staff, I have had a long career passionately serving the mission of our public broadcaster in various roles. And while I love this place, it's time for me to spread my wings and imagine a life outside of the CBC while I am at the height of my skills and while I have some runway left in my career life to do it. 
Anita, to me, Jennifer McGuire will be remembered as a journalist who sold favorable news coverage to Parks Canada. Mm. We had the contract, a $45,000 payment from Parks Canada to the CBC, and in the contract, they will get a documentary on the National. I don't know how she survived that. I don't know why that was not just a huge scandal. I think that's just Mm -hmm. inexcusable. You don't sell favorable coverage to the government. Jennifer McGuire is a news boss who really, more than anyone else at the management level, protected the celebrity hosts of the CBC uh, and and was about that culture. And, uh, you know, Mm. hushing up would-be misconduct uh, scandals, working to rally around these big personalities, promoting them and then protecting them. And to give a specific example, when uh, a journalist dared to criticize Peter Mansbridge, it wasn't me, I'm talking about... Dan Rowe, who's then the uh, editor of JSource, mm. wrote a piece quite reasonably questioning Peter Mansbridge's judgment when he took money from the oil sands while mm-hmm. covering the oil sands. Mm-hmm. Who rides to Mansbridge's defense but Jennifer McGuire using the CBC like on her editor's blog, like a very high perch, and denounced and attacked a journalist, Dan Rowe, for his baseless attack and saying that he that he's basically a hypocrite. He doesn't live up to his own journalistic ethics by uh, accusing Mansbridge of some sort of um, conflict of interest, mm-hmm. uh, when Mansbridge, as McGuire wrote at the time, is an impressive icon of our profession. Now, of course, the CBC then changed their policy on those speaking engagements mm-hmm. and, and blocked Mansbridge and everybody else from getting paid uh, speaking gigs from the oil sands or anyone. So I guess Dan Rose's criticism was legitimate, but I think he's still waiting for his apology from Jennifer McGuire. <laughs> So I, I don't know. Um, it seems to fall to me to uh, have the bad taste to say nasty things about somebody when they're, <laughs> you know, sol- soliciting, uh, you know, a golden wristwatch or something like that. You know, like Simon Haupt writes about media for the Globe. You know, uh, he fell into the line of saying, you know, she was one of the very few news executives in this country who felt it her duty to talk to the press about the decisions that she and her team made. You've got to respect that. Anita, Jennifer McGuire didn't even say no comment when I asked her about various news stories, like, mm. like, like stories that actually like would lead to CBC changing their policies. Yeah. I would ask her for comment. The only time she got back to me, and she got back to me like very quickly, like that day was when she was directly accused of something, implicated by somebody, mm-hmm. when she got back very quickly to, to deny it. Mm-hmm. Other than that, the idea that she considered it her duty. So I'll remember her as a journalist who did not answer questions from other journalists. Mm-hmm. I mean, this speaks more systemic issue in Canadian media, which is actually, I think you are the one I'll be quoting when you said Canadian media is less like an industry, more like a club. And so, I mean, like we all know Canadian media is really consolidated. It's very insular. And it's, you know, it, when I worked in media in the U.S., you could you could be a journalist and criticize the Times because there's so many other places you could work, right? Yeah. It wasn't the be all that ends all. But in a lot of ways, like this is why media criticism in this country is so weak because people are so reticent to, you know, call out the one place that actually has, you know, is still hiring journalists that is still, you know, producing a lot of coverage. And that's a huge problem because obviously, as we've seen from, you know, during McGuire's tenure, there was also, you know, the Gian Gomeshi scandal. What ends up happening is that people who are abusive and toxic get protected and they remain in high places and there's no justice. So, yeah, and that's terrible in particular for a media outlet that's supposed to hold, you know, to hold people in power accountable. You know, it's just completely hypocritical. So. I mean, if anything, it's worse than it's ever been in that the CBC is is standing, the last thing standing is like a source of good, high-paying, steady jobs. Mm-hmm. Everybody else, even if you get one, you got to be worried that it's going to be gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, who in this industry can afford to talk shit 
about exactly. any CBC executive and have that door slam shut for the rest of your career. It's just like a non-starter. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I like to think that things have gotten a little bit better with being able to, uh, you know, not just within Canada, but other people have found their voice. And a little we, bit. Yeah. I, a little for bit. Sure. But the dynamics are actually a bit more restrictive and prohibitive. Yeah. Well, uh, given that, like, you know, some of our, you know, longest standing papers are just hemorrhaging like money and resources it's really like increasingly when I have conversations with my friends in media it's like CBC is the only place you can really work and so there's this like big behemoth that you can never criticize and that's I mean that's fundamentally you know not great for CBC as well like not only internally for the culture but also for the journalism right like people should work in a place where they feel comfortable criticizing their superiors you know there should be some sort of dialogue so I do feel like you know there's a digital media ecosystem that's emerging things are definitely changing you know with the rise of places like the logic and discourse but it's still like small um, Mm -hmm. in comparison to establishment so we still have a ways to go Anita thank you thank you hey that's Canada Land Shortcuts for this week it has never been easier to support Canada Land and to get ad-free versions of this podcast. Just click on the link right there in the podcast show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. Just takes a second and then bloop, you've got the premium gold Canada Land feed right on your podcatching app. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Where can people find you, Anita? At Nita. That's N-E-E-E-D-A. That's three E's. N three E's D-A. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and also, if you want to follow Canadian Association of Black Journalists, uh, they're at, at C-A-B-J Media. Our website is CanadaLandShow.com, or go to CoolMules.ca to check out that show's website. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. 
but not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.